We talk a lot about studying God's Word here at our church, but do we mean it? We're bombarded by words every day, but none of them are as powerful as God's words. God's words are changing lives, so why don't we study it? Why don't we read it? If we don't study it, how are we going to understand it? How are our children going to understand? If we don't read it every day, how are we really following the Jesus way? I challenge you to begin to read today God's Word. Now's the time. Are you serious? Thank you, Nanette. Well, we have worshiped the Lord today in this place, and we're grateful for that. And every time we gather, there are all kinds of needs and challenges that we all face. And I want to thank you all for how you have prayed for and blessed our family. Y'all remember when uh, back in May, Cindy had surgery. And anyway, she's recovered from that and we're grateful. But we had to put her back in the hospital last night. And uh, so she's there today having some tests run from some complications that we've had. We don't believe it's connected to that. But nevertheless, thank you for your prayers so I got home this morning about 2 o'clock, and, uh, you know, I've told you all before about that preacher who dreamed he was preaching, and he woke up, and he was, and um, so I, uh, I got the state drink of Alabama with me today, so that won't happen to me, and, uh, uh, but anyway, thank you all for praying for her and for us as we continue this journey. So with that said, you know that um, our theme for the fall is rededicate. And what we're doing here at First Baptist Arlington this year is we just felt like 2022 needed to be about re-everything. And so this year, we have been addressing words from our theological vocabulary and words from our biblical vocabulary that begin with the prefix re. So for the fall, our word is rededicate, and we are studying the book of 1 Corinthians together, and we are wanting to help you, encourage you in that journey. So we have provided this booklet for you. I hope you've gotten your copy of it. If you didn't get one, they're out in our Welcome Center in various places, and this really is a how-to guide. It is a, a guide to help you to continue to learn how to just study the Bible in general, 1 Corinthians in particular. And so there's information in here, references that take you to numerous sources online to encourage you in your own personal journey of hermeneutics, which is the science of biblical interpretation, understanding what the text has to say, and then trying to figure out how to make life application to your life today. So that's the reason for this booklet. Also, to accentuate and encourage and further deepen the conversation, each Wednesday, I'm teaching a pastor's Bible study in our fellowship hall at noon, and we have a meal together. At 1230, I actually start the lesson, and we broadcast it online, and you can watch it later, or you can watch it live if you'd like to. Uh, you can find it on our various platforms, and we're studying 1 Corinthians. So we are preaching on it on Sunday morning, giving you some material to explore it for yourself, then teaching it on Wednesdays. And then Katie Hodges and I have started a new podcast called Tell Me More. And so you can, wherever it is that you get your podcast, you can go and find that. And basically what happens is on Monday, Katie sits down with me and interviews me and just says, okay, you preached on this, tell me more. And uh, we all know that preachers have more to say, right? I mean, that's just how it works. 
And so that's what we're doing to help encourage you in your own journey of research and study. So with that said, let's look at today's lesson. Today I've entitled the message, Rededicate Your Church Needs You. And the text is found in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 9. We'll get to that in just a second. But before we get to the actual text, I want, to, I want you to think with me for just a moment about this church in Corinth. Think about what happened in terms of Paul's relationship with this church. Acts chapter 18, Paul makes his way to Corinth and he'll spend a year and a half there. So he gives the church, the community, a year and a half of his life and starts the church, okay? Then Paul hears about some things that are going on in the church, so he writes a letter to the church at Corinth. We've lost that letter. We don't have it any longer. Then he hears some more information about the church. He receives a report, gets a letter from them, and he writes another letter. We have it here in our Bibles. It's called 1 Corinthians. Then Paul hears a little bit more about what's going on in Corinth. He writes them another letter. We've lost that letter. We don't have it. Then he pays them a visit. Then he hears a little bit more about what's going on in Corinth, and he writes another letter. We have that one, 2 Corinthians. So I want you to think about that with me for just a minute. Paul has spent a year and a half of his life in Corinth, and he's written four letters that we know of. What is going on in Corinth? I mean, why is this church requiring so much attention? What was, what was happening in that church? Well, we don't know everything. Here's the good news. Scholars have done enough research uh, to help us better understand what was happening in the city of Corinth, but also what was going on in the church. And so what you have to do is you have to read between the lines a little bit when you're doing your research. And I, I will talk about that here in just a second. But let me give you this summary that uh, J.M.B. Barclay, he has written an article entitled uh, Thessalonica and Corinth. He's a British um, scholar. And here's what he says about the church in Corinth. Let me just read to you this excerpt from his article. He says, the church, talking about the Corinthian church, is not a cohesive community, but a club whose meetings provide important moments of spiritual insight and exaltation, but do not have global implications of moral and social change. The Corinthians could gladly participate in this church as one segment of their lives, but the segment, however important, is not the whole in the center. Their perception of their church and of the significance of their faith could correlate well with a lifestyle which remained fully integrated in Corinthian society. So I want you to think about that with me for a minute. They, they could still stay well integrated in Corinthian society. Now, Corinthian society in the first century was incredibly corrupt. It was pagan in its orientation. You had at least 12 pagan temples. Idolatry was what was practiced throughout Corinth. It was a community known for its sexual immorality. We talked a little bit about that last week. So just actually the word Corinthianize was a word that was invented to refer to how to corrupt a young person. You could Corinthianize them. So what we believe about the church is, is that you could feel at home in the church and at home in Corinth at the same time. In other words, this scholar is saying, like Dr. Garland says that I mentioned to you already, there was too much Corinth in the church. Well, think about that. Um, this church 
is in the middle of an incredibly pagan society with all kinds of pressures. But here's the core problem. They thought they had it going on. And that's the real problem in Corinth. They thought they had arrived. They were perfectly fine with just fully integrating into the Corinthian society and do a little bit of church along the way. And they thought they had it made. So Paul is very concerned about them. In fact, if you've got your Bibles open, before we get to chapter 3, look at, look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. Paul is warning the church. He's, he's challenging the church. So look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. This is a sarcastic word from Paul. He says, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. Paul said, you guys have got it going on. You've all figured it out. You're living like kings, and we're not even there to rule with you. And then he says, how I wish that you really had begun to reign, so we also might reign with you. Paul says, here's what you don't understand. You think that you have arrived, and you have made it as a church, and what you need to know is you've got so much Corinth in you, you don't even know what a real church is supposed to be doing. Now, that's a binding Criticism. He loves this church and he's very concerned about them. And he's trying to help them figure out what it means to live as Christians in the city of Corinth. So let, let, let me just show you what happened. He's got, he's got two threads running in Corinthians. So here's, here's what we're going to do when we're studying 1 Corinthians. I want to help us do this together. First thing we've got to do is we've got to go all the way back 2,000 years and try to figure out what is going on in Corinth. That's the first job. What, what is happening? And the way we do that is we have to let the text say what the text says. That's where we start. Then we'll try to figure out how to understand it. And then we will transport what we learned some, several thousand miles in 2,000 years all the way to Arlington, Texas. Okay? So, for example, Paul has heard some things about the church. Look back at chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verse 11. Paul says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. So he's gotten a report, an oral report. He's had some people from Corinth travel to Ephesus and say, Paul, here's what's going on in the church. So he's gotten an oral message, okay? He also, though, if you'll go look at chapter 7, verse 1. Um, is that right, chapter 7, verse 1? Yeah. Chapter 7, he says, now, for the matters you wrote about. You see that? So not only has he received an oral report, he's gotten a letter. So evidently, a group came from Corinth to Ephesus. They had a letter with them. The oral report was, here's what's going on. We also have some questions for you. So this letter, 1 Corinthians, is Paul's response. He's responding to the oral report he's received. And then he'll say, now, concerning what you wrote about, he's responding to the letter. And he has much to say to them because a lot is happening in Corinth. They are dealing with all kinds of issues. In fact, if, 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 if I could just sum it up for you, let, let me just remind you of what's going on in, in this church. So, the church at Corinth in the first century was facing these things. Division. He addresses that in the first couple of chapters. Incest. 1 Corinthians 5 internal lawsuits. Evidently, some of the wealthier people in the church were flexing their muscles and actually were bringing legal action against some of the poorer members of the church. Sexual immorality, we talked about that last Sunday. Questions about Christian marriage, that's 1 Corinthians 7. 
arguments concerning meat purchased in the marketplace. That was another issue they were facing. Debates about numerous issues in public worship. Ignorance about spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. Misunderstanding about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Eschatological debates. They had, they had all kinds of issues. And so what we have to do is, is we have to try to go back and read the text, try to understand what was going on in the first century, and then see how we can take it and understand it and apply it to where we are today. So let me just give you a quick example. They had a debate in the church about buying meat from the local butcher's shop, and they disagreed about it. Now, I want you to think about that. Do you and I ever have a disagreement about where you buy your meat? If you buy your meat at Kroger and I buy my meat at Tom Thumb, do we ever disagree about that? No. They did, though, because here's the problem. The local butcher in Corinth bought his meat from the temples in Corinth, by and large. Not all of them, but many of them. So in other words, someone would go make a sacrifice at a pagan temple and bring an animal. The priest then would slay that animal, sprinkle blood on some altar. The priest then would take the carcass of that animal and keep some of it for himself and his family. And then he would sell the rest of the animal to the butcher. The butcher then would turn around and sell it to the people in his marketplace. And so Christians were going to the grocery store and buying meat And here was the problem. There were some people in the church who said, now wait a minute, you can't buy that meat that's been offered to a pagan God, even if it is on sale. You you can't do it. And there were other people in the church who said, who cares? All it is is meat. It's just a dead animal. You don't, who cares where you got that from? It's good meat. It's good for food. I've got money. I'm not offering up a sacrifice to a pagan animal. I'm going to cook it and eat it. Well, the church had a disagreement. Well, think about that. What we have to do as interpreters is go back and understand what was happening there, how they were trying to resolve it, and then we've got to translate what we learned from that all the way to our day. Does that make sense, y'all? 1 Corinthians offers us a great chance to do that. And that's what we're going to try to do as we make our way through this study. So, for example, the church at Corinth was divided. We've heard that from Chloe's household. There were people in the church who said, hey, you know, Apollos was the best teacher. He's right about this. Others said, no, actually, Paul, Paul got here first. So, Paul should be the one. Well, no, actually, Cephas, Simon Peter, he's been here. Well, no, actually, I just followed Jesus. We got all these house churches meeting and you've got wealthy people primarily who own the homes where they're meeting, and there are all kinds of things happening in the church. They have a hard time worshiping together because the wealthier people who own the homes where the people are worshiping, they want to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Well, the way they did that in the early church is they would have a fellowship meal first, and everybody would get together and eat. After they ate, then they would have the Lord's Supper. Well, the wealthy people were going ahead and eating and drinking, and they had eaten all the food, they were drinking all the wine, and then the working people would show up and there was nothing for them to eat, but it was time to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they were at odds with one another. So Paul is trying to say to this church, you're divided, you're, you're pulling yourself apart at the seams, okay? So look with me at this text, 1 Corinthians 3. We're kind of stepping into this argument midstream, And let me just give you a snippet, if I can. 
of what Paul has to say about that. Look at 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5. Paul says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each to his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They'll each be rewarded according to their own labor for we're God's we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field or you are God's building. Basically what Paul is saying is some of y'all in the church, you think you are somebody and I'm wanting to know you are not somebody. As a matter of fact, we are not somebody. The only somebody is God. He said, so quit getting off kilter and acting like you gotta follow this one or you gotta cave into this one or this one has more influence or there's a certain hierarchy. Paul says, look, even me and Apollos, we're just, we're just farmers. And so, yeah, I planted seed. Apollos watered that seed, but God is the one who makes it grow. So Paul says, we've got to get to the point to where we can recognize there's something bigger going on here than our factions in this church, okay? All right, now that I've said that, here's what I wanna do this morning. I wanna ask you a question. We go all the way back 2,000 years to the church at Corinth. Now I want you to fast forward with me to 2022, Arlington, Texas, okay? And let's come right here on Center Street. And here's my question for you this morning I want you to think about with me. What issues, we know what issues the Corinthians were facing. What issues are we facing as a church in Arlington, Texas in the 21st century? Well, think about that with me for just a minute. I've been thinking about it. What, what are we facing? Outside the church and within the church. What, what kinds of um, pressures are there? Here's what I would say to y'all. There are pressures, external pressures in today's broader culture that squeeze the church. Now sometimes when those pressures squeeze the church, it squeezes the very best out of us. However, there are other times when those pressures squeeze what? The worst out of us. And so as Christians right now in the 21st century, we're facing all kinds of pressures. The question is, how do we manage our way through them? And what are they to begin with? Well, let me just run through some of them with you this morning. First of all, I would say we're dealing with the polarization of American society. Have you noticed that on any issue, there is a spectrum in America today, and the closer you get to the extremes of any spectrum, the louder the voices are. I mean, the people on the far left and the far right of any issue shout at the rest of us all the time. And it just reveals a rift in our country. And then there's the politicization, I would say, of our country. Everything now in American society is so politicized. Isn't it amazing how they've simplified it for you? We now have red states and blue states. Have y'all seen this? So that means if you live in this state, well, then everybody in this state believes this, and it's a red state. And if you live in this state, 
that everybody in this state believes this because it's a blue state. Every time I see that, I think y'all have absolutely no idea what's really going on in America. It is just not that simple. I dare you, I defy you to figure me out. I just defy you to do it. I dare you to do it. I got a little bit of red in me. I got a little bit of blue in me. And I got a whole lot of blue and orange in me. Y'all already know that. But I'm telling you right now, you can't put me in that because you know what? I don't fit and most people don't. But the loud voices on the ends do and they act like they're the only ones here. And guess what? Guess what it's done to our churches? Believe it or not, people right now in America are making decisions about their life in church based on their politics. They want to go to a red church or a blue church. It's fascinating to me. And then, let me ask you this. Here's another pressure we face. The whole concept of success. What's the most successful church in America? If you had to just think about it with me. Which one would you pick? It's the most successful church in America. Before you answer that question, let me ask you to think about this. How are you going, how are you going to decide that? What's your... Uh, measurement do you say well it's the church that has the most people interesting I would say Disney beats us hands down every year <laughs> so is it most people well well I would say it's the it's the church that has the biggest digital footprint hmm. interesting fascinating Maybe it's the church that has the most property. Maybe it's the church that has the largest budget. Maybe it's the church that has the best preacher. Now, I, if you're going to judge it that way, I'm not saying I'm the best preacher. I'd like to think I'm in the running. You know what I'm saying? I mean, all, all preachers think that. You know, they just do. But the point is, what, what is the measurement? I mean, how do you decide, man, hey, you're talking to a friend of yours. You go, man, that church right there, dude, successful. Really? Do you go to it? Mm -mm. Oh, so you don't even go to it. Mm -mm. But you know it's successful. Mm -hmm. how, 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 do, how do you know that? Then we have this temptation to just take secular leadership principles and just use them in the church without baptizing them. We, we can get to the point to where we look to the business world and all of a sudden, margins of profit or loss become the indicators for us. I'm not opposed to learning, but I would say this. Anything that has to come into the church has to be baptized, including us. Then there are these formulaic principles. There are people right now who just want to reduce Christianity down to just a list. Hey, here's the thing. You want to be a growing, mature Christian, you need to do these three things. Boom, boom. Do these three in that order, like I'm telling you, and you're going to be a growing Christian. Wow. Which three? And who, who decided that? How can I reduce Christianity down to these formulas and make it all so simple? You know, another challenge we face? Our reputation. See, we're, many churches, we're, we're worried about our reputation. We're worried about how, how everybody views us. You don't want to be a church that's got a bunch of of uh, negative press on Google. You want people to hit like. You don't want a bunch of dislikes and negative reviews on Google or on social media platforms. 
We're worried about how certain segments of society view us. You know, I've got a little experience with that. You know, this church that I pastor, we've received some critical reviews. There are a couple of media outlets that have said some very negative things about First Baptist Arlington. There's even a documentary that I've seen a part of that has some tangential, tangential connection to our church. Here's what's fascinating. Not a single one of those media outlets or the people that were in charge of the documentary have ever actually sat down with me. I find that quite fascinating. I'm not the resident expert of First Baptist Arlington, but wouldn't y'all agree I know a little bit about First Baptist Arlington? And before you all of a sudden provide all this negative material about our church, wouldn't it stand to reason you'd at least do a little homework and find out what's really going on? It's fascinating to me. But people are worried about their reputation and what others think about them. Are y'all still with me? I know you're thinking of others. How about accommodation? We've talked about this already. What a real temptation for the church right now in the 21st century. You see, we're tempted to make the church more palatable to the culture. If we can just kind of soften the message a little bit, if we, can, if we can maybe shift our core beliefs, maybe we'll be more popular in the culture and, and more people will want to be a part of it. And some people say, well, you know, y'all, you've already done that. I don't know why you're so worried about it now. You've already done it. I mean, you've done it with slaves. You've done it with Gentiles. You've done it with women. And so now why wouldn't you go ahead and do it with all things that have to do with human sexuality? Well, let me just address that real quickly with y'all. Because here's what I would tell you. When you're studying the Scripture, you've, you've got to engage disciplines to make sure that you're really doing your homework Okay, And so here's what we believe as evangelical Christians. You know, when God revealed himself in creating this world, here we are. God just created everything and it's a part of his revelation. Then God speaks to Moses and he tells Moses, okay, here's what I'm going to expect from you. Here are my ten expectations, ten commandments. Here's the law. We hear that from God. But guess what, y'all? As time progresses, the revelation of God increases. In other words, as time progresses, God reveals more and more of himself. It's called progressive revelation. So by the time you get to Jesus, there's the full revelation of God. Now you and I are on this side of Jesus. We not only have the testimony of the Old Testament, we have the person of Jesus, we have the testimony of the New Testament, and we have 2,000 years of Christian history. We know more about God than Moses did. Does that make sense? Because God has revealed more and more of himself. So when we, when we recognize that, the Bible is not a flat book. It's not a flat document. Here's what we do as Christians. We put on our New Testament glasses, and through those lenses, we then focus our attention on what God is teaching us in Scripture. And so if you will study the Scripture and you study Gentiles, here's what you'll discover. Study the treatment of Gentiles in the Old Testament theologically and look at what happens in the New Testament, you'll see a trajectory. You'll see it moving in a positive direction. If you want to study slavery, you'll find the very same thing to be true. Think about it. In the first century, slaves were property. Slaves had no rights. There was not a thought given to how you treated them. Why in the world 
would the Apostle Paul give specific instructions to Christians about how to treat their slaves? And why would Paul write Philemon about Onesimus, a slave? You know why? Because Paul knew theologically that every slave in the Roman Empire was a human being created in the image of God. And I'm convinced it was Paul's hope that one day the church would understand that and recognize it and slavery would be abolished. In other words, there's a trajectory. You study women in the Old Testament and you look at the New Testament, you find these threads and you find in a patriarchal society messages positive about women. And so there's a trajectory that's moving in a certain direction. You study human sexuality and guess what? In the New Testament, it gets worse. Goes the opposite direction. Jesus will say, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, don't even lust. So the New Testament actually takes human sexuality to a whole different level, moving in the opposite direction. Does that make sense? So when people say, well, you know, the church has already done this, well, that's because the church is studying the scripture and coming to a deeper understanding of the trajectory of the Bible. Well, why won't the church compromise on this? Because the scripture won't let us. And so, but the temptation, though, is to go ahead and just... Just let it go. I mean, why does it matter? Well, here's what I want to tell y'all. Um, right now, you know what I'm concerned about? I'm concerned about a lot of stuff. But I'm concerned about young adults in America. I am. And I'll tell you why. The research is telling us that young adults in America are exiting the church. They're turning their back on the church. You, you may have read uh, the latest Pew Research just published this week. In 1972, 90% of Americans said they were Christians. Now it's about 65%. Pew Research says if the trends continue as they currently are among young adults, by 2070, Christianity will be somewhere in the neighborhood of between 35 and 40% in America. It'll become the minority perspective. There's a lot of factors that contribute to that. But I want you to know it's gotten our attention. So when we look at 2023, let me give you a glimpse. 2022, our theme is re, dot, dot, dot. 2023, our theme is going to be why does it matter? And we're going to focus on apologetics and evangelism. And we're also going to specifically focus on reaching young adults with the good news of the gospel. And we're going to minister to everybody. But we're going to try to figure out how to take the gospel to young adults. So this last week, I was at Baylor for three days. And I was, uh, I was in an interview on Wednesday with eight seminary students. Four of them from Truett Seminary, Baylor. Four of them from Northern Seminary in Chicago. These are two theologically centrist institutions. We had numerous questions to ask these young adults. My question was this. I said, y'all are young adults. Here's the tension that we feel, the pressure. Many people are telling us, if you want to reach young adults, you need to water down this message. You need to compromise on certain key issues. You need to change maybe the core beliefs at some points in Christianity to make the gospel more palatable and more attractive to this younger generation. Do y'all believe that to be true? Okay, I asked these eight seminary students that. One of the seminary students looked at me like I had two heads all of a sudden. And she said, why would you do that? She said, my generation already has enough trendy stuff going on. The last thing we need is for the core message of the gospel to be changed. No, please don't do that. 
to a person. All eight of them said, please don't do that. That is not the answer. Tell us the truth. Well, that's what I believe. But I was so heartened to hear these young adults say the very same thing. And I know the temptation is real, y'all. Of course I do. But here's what I've learned. Most every denomination that has chosen accommodation is shrinking right now in America. So we've got to be thoughtful about what we do. These pressures are real. Division is another pressure we face. Some people bring the divisiveness that they experience in the culture, they just bring it right into the church and manifest it maybe in different ways. So I'm saying all that to say this to y'all. This one, I want to make sure you know this this morning. Your church needs you. I want you to know that. I'm the pastor of this church. Now, you may be here today joining us online, here in person. You go to another church and belong to another church. That's great. Your church needs you. Our churches need us. You see, we need each other. We need your presence. We need you to be in place. We need your investment. Your church, we need your maturity. We need the diversity that you represent. I'm just going to tell you, in my opinion... If you want to just go to a church that is so narrow in its understanding that everybody in that church thinks the exact same way, I would just say, be careful. Diversity makes you so much richer. And it challenges you to be more mature. We need the diversity that you represent in this church. We need your passions. We need the beauty of people from all walks of life, united not around piddly things, not around secular things. We need the people of God to be united around the mission of God. That means we need some of y'all planting. We need some of y'all digging in the dirt. We need some of y'all cultivating. We need some of y'all building fences. We need some of y'all harvesting. We need some of y'all watering because it takes all of us. And the bottom line is God gets the glory. That's what Paul's arguing for in the first century. Now here I am 2,000 years later And I'm arguing for it in the 21st century because human beings haven't changed that much. Let let me just remind you, you might be new to our church and maybe you don't know we even have this, but we have a set of core beliefs. Let me read to you the article in the church from our core beliefs at First Baptist. We believe the church is the body of Christ on earth today. Jesus established the church and it exists to perform God's will on earth. Believers are to invest themselves in the life and work of the church. Matthew 16, Acts 2, 1 Corinthians 12. So with that said, if you want to know, just here in closing, what are we doing at First Baptist Arlington? Well, let me just try to answer it for you succinctly. If if somebody said to you, so what what are y'all doing down there on Center Street? Let me tell you what we're doing. We are working to build a colony of heaven an expression of the kingdom of God, an example of God's redemptive work right here on earth in Arlington, Texas. That's what we're doing. So everything we do points toward that. Why do we? Because we're trying to build a colony of heaven. Well, why do y'all? Because we're trying to build a colony of heaven. Well, why is this so important? Because we're trying to build a colony of heaven. Why does that matter? Well, because actually we're trying to build a colony of heaven down there on Center Street and let it spread out through this community. The church, people from various socioeconomic levels, educational backgrounds, multiple ethnicities, perspectives, professions, viewpoints, 
These people in this church refusing to just be a reflection of our culture, but instead to be examples of God's redemptive power, developing deep relationships within the body, growing in our understanding of the breadth and the depth of the gospel of Jesus, moving past petty differences and divisions that can plague us, honoring each other, valuing each other, seeing the worth in every individual. And our focus is on Jesus, on his plan, on his will, on his way. And then showing our city an example of unity amidst diversity, showing the people of Arlington that guess what? You can actually go somewhere and here's what you can find. People from all walks of life represent about every perspective you can imagine from multiple layers in this community. And here's what you're going to find, a sweet spirit. People that have deep joy. People that are involved in transformational ministries. People that actually care about our community and we care about our world and we're gonna do our best to love our world by sharing the gospel. And how is all that happening? You know how it's all happening? Not because we're a red church, not because we're a blue church, but because we're a Jesus church. And we are focused on him and it's the power of his gospel that draws us all together. And so I would say again to you, your church needs you. But I also want you to know you need your church. So, praise God that we have one. So, amen, amen. So let's pray together as a family. Father, we love you. Lord, we, we realize that we live in a complex time, but we also know it's always been complex. I dare say, Lord, if we could travel back in time to the church at Corinth, they would tell us, man, it's complicated <laughs> to be a church in Corinth. I know it was, must have been. It's complicated to be one now. But Lord, we are so grateful that you're giving us the chance to do it, the opportunity to be a church, to live in community, to find our way on the Jesus way. And we want to thank you for it. And we trust God that you will guide us deepen our relationships with one another, our humility, our call to discipleship. And Lord, may you strengthen our focus and our gaze on Jesus. We pray in his name, amen.